Well, good morning, church. How are you all this morning? Great. Oh, that's about to change because we're doing Romans 2. And I feel like every Joel's already warned you today. Romans 2 can be a bit of a brutal slog. And so we're in this together. Just remember, it's not me who wrote the Bible. Okay. You know the old saying, don't shoot the messenger? Please. Please. But... I like that um, if you did miss the message last week, um, like Joel said, Hugh kicked us off. He did a wonderful job. It was the perfect mixture of informative and convicting and encouraging and really kind of like pulled us back to um, foundations of faith and our righteousness being found in Christ. And I'm going to kind of like reference a bit of Hugh's message as we start. But what I really liked is that he read the whole chapter before. And what that meant is that things that he didn't necessarily touch on in his message, still we had the opportunity to like be drawn to it or reflect on it and then kind of like further push into it through the week. So we're going to read all of Romans 2 together and then we're going to get into it. But before we start, oh, actually, no, let's start with that. Hit it, Cam. Romans 2 starts like this. You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for, whatever, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgments against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think that you'll escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of His kindness, forbearance and patience, not realising that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when His righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who, by persistence in doing good, seek glory, honour and immortality, He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. And a side note for that, Jew is, um, was the believer of the God of the Bible at the time and a Gentile is pretty much everyone else. And so it will touch on those two words often through the Scripture. <laughs> but if you keep that at the front of your mind, that Jew is the contextual Bible believer and a Gentile is everyone else. But glory, honour and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but in those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles do, indeed when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. And that's wordy, but we move on. They, know, they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness that, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew or if you call yourself a believer, if you rely on the law and you boast in God, if you know His will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, 
if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor for the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teaches others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonour God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you have become as though you have not been circumcised. So then if those if those who are not circumcised keeps the law requirement, will they not be regarded as those who are circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you, who, even though you have the written code and circumcision, are a lawbreaker. A person is not a Jew who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew or a person is a believer who is one who inwardly and... No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly. And the circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. And we made it through 29 verses. And honestly, we're, we're halfway there. Let's go. And so you can imagine that it was a hard slog preparing a sermon on a verse that speaks so harshly about practising what you preach. Because I don't want to be up here being scrutinised in my own actions and the judgment against me. But that this is the corrective nature of the Word of God. And it is not sunshine and roses because it doesn't live in ignorance of the real world and the real state of sin that we're in. And so um, the end of Romans chapter 1 Um, Hugh mentioned it, but it is all about the sinfulness of humanity, another dark one. And it mentions greed, mentions every kind of wickedness, envy, strike, deceit and malice. And this part of chapter one from last week, it speaks um, mainly about the non-believers of the time. And um, even here in Romans chapter two, we read, like even if they are non-believers, they should still know better. Verse 14 said, indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law... Do by nature things required by the law. They are law for themselves, even though they don't have the law. And so what that is kind of saying is they have a sense of right and wrong, or they have a sense of morality, even without knowing Jesus, even without knowing the Bible, they have a sense of right and wrong and still they break that, that morality. And throughout that part of chapter one, Paul only says they. He never says you. He, no, he never says us. He never says we. He only says they because he's speaking about the non-believers of the time. And so it makes it even easier for us to approach chapter two and enter chapter two with a disposition that's like, oh, they, you know what? They are wicked. That is wrong. They shouldn't do that. Oh my gosh, malice and envy and strife and deceit. Like that is bad. They are wicked. They should be subject to God's judgment. And you can imagine the shock they got when they opened Romans chapter 2. And the way that I have likened it and the way I explained it um, to Jack is that like maybe, hopefully it's a common experience amongst everyone here, but who has um, driven to or from Sydney? Everyone, I feel like it's the nature of living in a somewhat regional town is that we're like connected straight to Sydney. And we all know the feeling of driving along the freeway and seeing some wild thing come up, come up the old rearview mirror, and um, 
like they're going, what, 130, maybe 140. They're going right, they're probably half a metre from the rear end of us, right? And so you kind of like move over, get out of their way and they go and do it to the next car. Then they swerve into the left lane then they throw some rubbish outside. And you just think, honestly, you're the worst. You're the worst. The joy I would get if we pull around this bend and there's a, there's a policeman there. <laughs> I hope there is. I hope I come around and you're pulled over and and lo and behold, we see the siren in our rear view mirror and we think, let's go, let's go. Justice, vindication, we're ready. And that is just like this inherent desire that we as humans have for justice. We want to see people... We want to see the right in people. We want to see things come together, the law laid down. And then to our shock and to our horror, Romans 2 starts and we get pulled over. We get pulled over. And it says, you therefore, one who knows the law, who's ready to convict old mate up ahead, you therefore have no excuse You pass judgment on someone else for at whatever point you judge another, you're condemning yourself because you you who pass judgment does the same things. And he's pretty much saying, well, if you know the law so well, what are we going to find you guilty of? And this creates this really harsh like, oh, it's like, was I going 115 because, you know, allow for the difference of the speedometer or was I eating a Big Mac or was I pressing the map thing on my phone? Gosh, This inward reality can be quite confronting when it is um, at our own life. And it shows us that no one, no one of us truly lives up to our own standard. And like truthfully, it's been difficult for me and it's been tempting for me to read this as, yeah, you know what? Those other Christians shouldn't judge other people. That just shows you. Those like religious people, they have caused damage in our society. Historically, they have done this. But um, the scripture and Paul speaks with you repeatedly. It's emphatically directing this towards me. And that's how we have to approach Romans 2, is that it is not directed to a them. It is not directed to a historical you. It is not directed at a future you. It is directed at us as people who claim to know the law, who claim to be believers, who claim to be Christians, who claim to be made right. It says you. And when we're opening this scripture, we cannot avoid that. And so as we like kind of go on, we notice that we're not just like being condemned for just judging other people, you know, like that, that's wrong, don't judge others. Like, but we're being, we're being accused of being guilty of the same things that we have judged them for. And you might think, well, I don't remember going 130 and I don't remember throwing something out the window. It's like, I don't remember being greedy and being envious. Like, I, how can I be judged of the same thing? But... We remember the majority of Paul's list of wickedness back in chapter one. It's not about actions, more so about attitudes. And Paul's teaching here lines up with Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, where Jesus says, You've heard that it was said to the people long ago that you shall not murder. And anyone who, sub- anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Checks out. Checks out. We like that. But I tell you, this is Jesus speaking, that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. And he says a little bit later on in Matthew, there's not a slide for this one, sorry, Cam. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Checks out. 
But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so our actions under this teaching of Jesus are a matter of heart as well as a matter of what's in our hands. And Tim Keller describes it like this. For most of us, I love that, most of us, it's not too hard to get to the end of the day and say, well, I haven't murdered anyone, most of us. It's rarer, however, for us to honestly say, I've not been angry with anyone today. I have not treated anyone in a way that says they're not worthy of love. And that is what Paul is directing our sight to here, that it is about the attitude. And this verse in Romans tells us that at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself. And later in this chapter, we we read before that Paul talks about the hypocrisy amongst believers. And he said, God's name amongst Gentiles is blasphemed because of you. And that should, as a community centred on Christ, as a church who, who... declares to know the good news of Jesus, that should have us shaking. Because when we judge others as if we were in fact seated on the throne, it's like we've forgotten the mercy that is made new for us every morning and the goodness that we get from God. And even worse than that, that people think that we are representing God when we are pretending to be Him. And that has just um, floored me this week, I would say. Preparing this has um, absolutely bruised me. If I could show up in a spiritual sense, I would have a black eye and I would be winded and I would have a limp because this part of the Bible has absolutely destroyed me this week and should so as believers. It feels so brutal that we have all been given over to sin. Whether we know the Bible or not, whether we're believers, unbelievers, Christian, Jews, pagans, the lot of us. This verse means that we find ourselves on level ground with each other. And truthfully, that ground that we find ourselves on, it, am I allowed to say this? It kind of sucks. Is that allowed? It sucks. It sucks. It's hard. And it is so brutal, but that is how life feels sometimes. Like we have this big weighty expectation of ourselves and whether that is placed on us by ourselves or by our church experience, our experience of religion, our parents, our school, whatever that might be, that sensation of constantly falling short, it can be debilitating, but it is a shared experience. It results in us just striving to to be better or more accurately, being perceived as being better. As Christians, we're constantly fixated on this idea of being on track and we even use it as a measure of life. You know, we say like, oh, he's gone off the rails or like she's really lost her way. But like when it comes to us and inward reflection, we're doing the exact same thing, but we've just rebranded it. We are obsessed with work, we're obsessed with social media, with finances, with lust, and we use these all as distractions from our own self-seeking evilness. Where is the unforced rhythms of grace that the Bible talks about? Where is that peace that surpasses understanding? Where is the joy in every circumstance? It doesn't feel like it. It just feels like we're moving towards a destination that we don't even understand and we keep falling short. And this level that we find ourselves on, even ground with every other person as every other sinner we are, this is where this Bible verse says that we will be judged 
Paul says in Romans 2.16, he says, This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. This is what we're being judged on. I'm not my best self. I'm not doing my best work right now. I'm not in a good headspace. And this is where we're going to be judged, whether it's a public shortfall or whether it's an inward one. This is where God says we're going to be judged. Paul says, as my gospel declares. And to me, that is a weird way to end a really obliterating statement. He says, as my gospel declares. But this, um, this phrase, my gospel, not to be confused with my Jesus that Joel referred to from last week. This, this phrase, my gospel, is used two other times in the New Testament. Once in Romans 16, verse 25. Every time I've referred to like a future Romans, I'm like, oh, spoiler alert. This is from Romans 16. We'll be doing this in December. It says, Now all glory to God, who is able to make you strong, just as my gospel says. This message about Jesus Christ has revealed His plan for you Gentiles, a plan kept secret from the beginning of time. And then it says it again in 2 Timothy 2.8. It says, Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel. It goes on to describe it if you're seeing the comma. But so Paul is talking all about judging others and being judged ourselves and condemnation for where we find ourselves. And then it points back to Jesus. Why does it do that? Well, I think that um, the answer for that is kind of found in this last part of chapter two. And it feels like a weird thing to segue into without um, knowledge of it. But Paul discusses circumcision. And I told Jack yesterday, I was like, and I'm preaching on circumcision. And he was like, why? You've done that before. I was like, I have. And I didn't know that it was as taboo as it might be. So we're going for it because it's in the Word of God. Let's go. And so the, um, the importance of this principle, it actually cannot be overstated. Circumcision amongst Jews, it was an outward or a visual sign for a covenant or which was a promise between It can be between people or between people and God. And this one was between um, God's people and him. And in ancient times, when you made a covenant, you'd act out the curse that you were going to accept if the promise was broken. So other examples in the Bible and other examples from that time would be like a man would get sand and put it on his head and say, if I was to break this curse, let me become dust. Or he would chop an animal in half when he's making the promise and say, if I break this, I, sorry, not curse. If I break this covenant, let me die as this animal has. And so circumcision is a cutting off in a very personal and tender way. And so what God was saying to Abraham when he gave his people the covenant of circumcision was, if you want to be in a relationship with me, you need to be circumcised as a sign to you that, and everyone that if you break this covenant, you will be cut off completely, cut off from others, cut off from life and cut off from me. But Paul has spent this entire chapter of Romans reminding us and teaching us and showing us that no one does keep that covenant. So that leaves us with the question, does God have any people at all? Can anyone stand righteously before the Lord? Has anyone been made to be right with him? It's certainly not us. It's certainly not through our driving and our living and our walking. But the cutting off for this covenant has already happened. 
Jesus was cut off from the land of the living. And that's from Isaiah 53. And if we jump back in our car and we jump back onto the freeway, the equivalent of that is going along the freeway, getting pulled over for every crime we have ever committed or thought about committing in our heart and in our hands. And Jesus jumping in the driver's seat and saying, you know what? I'll take the demerits for this one. I'll pay the fine for this one. And we say like, what do you mean? You weren't even driving. It was me. I did it. And he said, you know why? Because I love you. And I feel like that is just thinking about it in such a practical way that thinking that somebody would pay the price when they literally did nothing wrong is the theology and the good news of Jesus. And maybe the first time you've ever heard it described on the M1 freeway, But Jesus himself took on that burden and he left perfect community with God the Father to become man and he lived the perfect life without a single sin. If the band wants to come up, I'm nearly finished. And Jesus was crucified unjustly and cut off. And why? He paid the price so we wouldn't have to be. And now when we're judged... We can stand rightfully in Jesus. We can jump back into the passenger seat and say like, I'm with Him. I'm with Him. He was driving now. We don't need to look upon others with judgment because we have the mercy so fresh that's been bestowed upon us in our mind. And it, and it creates this confronting thing of like, where are you today? Maybe you've let the rules and religion grow over the freshness of your salvation. You remember what it was like to initially jump out of the driver's seat, have Jesus say, you know what, I've got this one. I'll pay for this. You don't have to go to jail. You don't have to lose your license. You don't have to miss out on life because I will do that for you. And maybe it feels like you've kind of like leant over and you've taken the wheel again and you've tried to take control and you say, actually, I've driven, I used to commute to Sydney. I know this way. I can, I can do this one. I know. You know, you get out of bed, you go to work, you come home, you make dinner and you go to, I, I know how to do this one. It's business as usual for me as a Christian. You're looking left and right. And from that, from the driver's seat, you can see everyone else's lane. You can see what everyone's doing. And maybe you have, you have a perfect view of everyone's condemning behaviour except for your own. Or maybe you're hearing this for the first time with a fresh spirit thinking, you know what? That constant shortfall, that feeling of driving towards something and having really no idea of the rules, having really no idea of how to stay on track, having no idea of where I'm going, that actually is wearing me down. And that actually is debilitating. Maybe you feel like you're a slave to those invisible rules, the ones that the Scriptures say are written on your heart. We know right and wrong, church. It's been given, up, given to us in every part of our, mor- of our morality and our moral beings. And we're desperate to move forward, to make progress, but we don't have the knowledge or the destination. Let me read Romans 7, 5 to 6 for you. And then we'll pray. Another spoiler for Romans 7, let's go. It is not that we think we're qualified to do anything on our own. Our qualification comes from God. He has enabled us to be ministers of His new covenant. And this is a covenant of not of written laws, but of the Spirit. The old written covenant ends in death, but under the new covenant, the Spirit gives life. And that is an invitation and a promise, even to those of us who judge others, even to those of us 
who condemn ourselves. We have an opportunity to step out of the driver's seat, to step out of a position where we've given ourselves sovereign control and we can let Jesus, because He lived the life, He died the death, He was resurrected so we could be too. And so let me pray for you. Would you stand and we're gonna worship a God who redeems and restores and forgives. And a part of that Romans 2, in chapter four, it says, do you show contempt for the riches of His kindness, forbearance and patience without realising that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? And when we think of God's kindness that gave up His own Son, and when we think of His kindness that forgives us even though we are sinning constantly, falling short constantly, doing evil, thinking evil, judging other children of God, He forgives us constantly and that is because He is kind. And that kindness should bring a sense of our own morality, our own shortfall, but also let it not get in the way of the glory and the wonder of our God who had the perfect plan for restoration and reconciliation. Let me pray for you, church, and then we'll worship. God, You are so kind and You are so thoughtful. Lord, let none of the glory that we work for be for us and let it all be for You. We worship You and acknowledge You as a mighty Saviour God and let every time we open these Scriptures, as hard as they may be to read and as harder, harder than that as they are to apply, I pray that we would receive it with a spirit that has a freshness of salvation in it. I pray that we would, um, our mind would go to every time we've tried to take control, for every time we've looked into someone else's lane and pass judgment on them. For every time, Lord, we say sorry and we look to Your kindness and may it lead us to Your repentance, God. Help us to not shy away from the correction of a God who is good. And like Jolly was saying before, Lord, help us, help our reverence and our worship to You, put us in the rightful position. Help us to get off the throne, even if we have a finger on it, let us just take it off and submit to You, Lord. Let us worship at Your feet. Let us glorify the cross. Let us be reminded day in and day out that we have new mercies because of what You did for us, Lord. And let the good news reverberate through us as a church, that we would stay on track forever. And we would um, just revere You, the One who would keep us on track. We love You, Lord, and we pray in Your precious saving Name. Amen. Amen.